Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining. Welcome back to the .NET on AWS show. As you can see, I'm not Brandon Minnick. Brandon is not there today because he's celebrating um, uh, the Independence Day in the United States. So happy uh, Independence Day for everyone. It's tomorrow, but um, he, he takes a day off to celebrate this event in family. So um, happy uh, Independence Day, Brandon. Happy uh, Independence Day to uh, every uh, US-based people. So today, uh, I'm François Boutourich. I'm a .NET developer advocate. And... I am joined by James Isham, uh, senior cloud architect. How are you, James? I am doing well. I seem to have just developed a cough in the last five minutes. So if I keep swallowing and coughing, then I apologize in advance. But yeah, I'm doing good. Okay. So what, what are the news you want to share with us uh, this week? So there's a couple of things I found that I wanted to share, actually. Um, one of which isn't necessarily new news but it's a really cool library that i've just discovered in the last couple of weeks and it's a library called bogus so i'm sure many people listening if you're developing something new or you're building out a system or you're running some tests you need some data to test against right like you need to generate some data and sometimes i found myself like manually keying in data thinking of people's names going through like me and then my family and then my dog and then my family's family and trying to think of all these random bits of data. Um, so Bogus is this really cool library that you can use to automatically generate test data or random data. And you can use that to populate hmm. databases before you run tests or and all manner of different things. So that's one thing I've discovered recently, which I don't think is a new thing. I don't think it's a new library, but I've only just uh, discovered it and it's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, di I didn't know the library before you 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 speak to me uh, about it, and I wish I I knew it before because uh, I went through many projects where I was okay. Let's create a test data set, and you like like you mentioned, you you're always guessing okay, what first name, what what last name should I use? So yeah, it's definitely a good helper to to speed yeah, up. Yeah, it's, really, it's a really neat library that you know you can add like validation. You can add, it's, it's it's uses the the fluent style of defining things. So yeah, it's, it's a really cool library. Um, and then the second thing I wanted to share, so anyone who does know who I am knows who I, I do a lot of things with serverless.net, particularly with Lambda, with AWS. Um, and as of last year with the release of .NET 7 and native AOT going generally available, we've added support to be able to run native AOT on Lambda. We've got tooling to be able to do that. But when you start to use native AOT, there's some shall we say, limitations or trade-offs you've got to make. And there's a really awesome podcast episode from Brian Hogan um, on the No Dogma podcast that really dives deep into how native AOT works, the history of native AOT arrived to where it is today. Um, it's a really good deep dive into that background and also some of the, the trade-offs that, that you need to consider. And that's with Andy Goki, who's the, I believe he works on the compilers team. He does a, he, he does a lot of work with, building native AOT at Microsoft. Um, so it's a really cool podcast episode. If you're doing serverless things, you're looking at adopting native AOT with .NET 8 coming later this year and the support for ASP.NET with native AOT, it's going to get more and more powerful, especially within the realms of, of serverless things. So yeah. yeah I, can, I, think I know. So let, let, let's take two, two minutes to discuss this. I know you, you've did a, a lot of tests um, around uh, support of .NET on AWS Lambda or serverless uh, compute engine. 
uh, and especially uh, recently you, you test uh, native IoT on uh, Lambda. So can you speak a, a bit more about this? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the one of the big benefits of native IoT is, is startup time. Your application will simply just start up faster. Um, and we've run a lot of benchmarks um, for the different ways of running um, .NET on Lambda. Um, and the way Lambda works, without diving too deeply into the technical details, is you've got this idea of what's called a cold start. So the first time a Lambda function is invoked, the execution environment needs to start up, your code needs to be downloaded, the code needs to be started, and then it's ready to receive a request. And historically, for languages like .NET and, and Java, the, the compiled languages, that cold start time takes longer than it would for said Node by Python. Um, and we ran quite a lot of benchmarks for .NET 6 using the managed runtime with .NET 6. And for a, for a, the application we used, the cold start time was typically around 600, 700 milliseconds at P50, going up to 900 milliseconds at P90, P99. And that's just the .NET 6, standard .NET 6 running with Lambda. Once we enabled native ALT, that dropped to around 300 milliseconds, 320 milliseconds. So that's a 60%, give or take, performance uh, impact at P50. The, the, the percentage difference gets slightly smaller at P99, but at P50, that's um, much, yeah. much faster. That's, that's pretty awesome. And I guess when we fix it to reduce the cold start at this small, small, uh, very small cold start, uh, I guess it's it covers most of use case. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think very the, very performance oriented use case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if, if you're doing things asynchronously, you know, if you're doing reading off a queue or doing things off an event bus, then typically that cold start performance, you know, it's a second maybe. Um, that's typically not going to affect the vast majority of use cases. If you're building synchronous APIs, then of course your your performance becomes much more important. Um, and another thing I will I will point out while we're on the subject of cold starts is these same benchmarks that that I ran. Um, we run hundred uh, ten requests a second for ten minutes. I think is what it was hundred requests. No, ten requests a second for ten minutes, um, and that led to about one hundred and sixty thousand invokes of the Lambda functions behind the scenes, of which I think around five hundred of them were cold starts. So actually. If your API is under a relatively consistent load, again, that startup time becomes less relevant. I'm not saying it's not important, but you know, it's less relevant because the vast majority of requests, because .NET is so fast, like at warm, when it's warm, it's five, six, seven millisecond response times. So it becomes less and less important if you've got a steady state load. So the thing I always say with cold starts is, you know, run your tests against some kind of real world traffic or some you know the traffic pattern that you're actually expect your application to receive use that when you're doing your test to see if the performance works because you may, may be surprised by what you see compared to just running it manually okay that's, that's pretty cool so now it's time to welcome our amazing guest for today uh, we have we have an amazing guest uh if you are looking at content around .NET and observability in, in, in the last months you you've probably uh worked either way so i would like to to welcome uh martin uh, Fouet, uh to the stream uh welcome martin uh thank you for joining us today 
Hello, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Yes, um, I I have been a little bit um, promiscuous in the community um, over the last sort of six to twelve months. So yes, um, the, I I would imagine people have seen me around if they've been following any of the observability or open telemetry um, hashtags around any of the social platforms. So, but yeah, yeah. great to be here and talk about um, .NET in general. Yeah, thank thank you, Martin. Uh, first of all, can, can you for those who don't know you, maybe uh, some folks who don't know you, can, can you just present yourself uh, very quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Martin Thwaites. Um, I go by martin.net on the socials um, from Mastodon to Twitter. Um, Blue Sky is a uh, recent one um, that I've just got on. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm a um, first and foremost an observability advocate. I've been preaching about understanding production systems and telemetry and all of those kind of things for seven or eight years now. Um, and recently joined a company called Honeycomb. Um, we do a observability platform that's agnostic of language. Um, and I was brought on as the um, .NET guy who knows all the .NET things. I'm pretty sure they didn't know what .NET was before I arrived. So, you know, already adding value from day one. Um, but yeah, that's me. Okay. Um, I have a question for you. Because what we want to uh, share with, with the community is how our guests um came to the tech industry and uh to .NET in more specifically so can you share your journey to the tech industry and to dotnet um yeah i mean i i would say mine's a little bit non-standard um i when i first i did a university degree in it um when they didn't really know what it was um to them it was building circuit boards and supporting people with terminals and stuff like that it was um i think it was the first person doing something called information and computer control technology um which was essentially internet um is what it actually turned out to be um but i left without a degree um and started working um in hardcore sales um selling credit cards um for my sins i'm sorry and anybody who i got into debt i'm really sorry um so so yeah i, I started doing that and i always knew i wanted to be in it got a job doing something called file tab d um which is a proprietary language which is all about decision tables um for insurance companies um essentially doing insurance calculations and algorithms and that kind of stuff um incredibly fast incredibly fast but you know it's not really an oo language by any stretch of the imagination um however i started to try and write it in an oo way and everybody was like what's that that doesn't look right that's um um but then i got into testing um and systems analysis so designing and um essentially doing automated testing and that's kind of what got me into .NET. Um, I was working at a company in Warrington, and um, we needed to test the application. I was the quality manager there and started writing tests with NUnit back in the day um, that exercised the API, exercised the website using Selenium. I was like 0.2 beta for Selenium. Um, and yeah, just started um, writing C-sharp code um, in NUnit. And I was like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. Um, and very quickly, I'd built an application um that was testing things at load in production and all this kind of stuff which was um which was pretty interesting um 
and yeah that was what got me started in it and then went into starting designing systems building systems then building teams that build systems um most recent project um was uh building the systems for manchester airport group um i built all the back-end systems from there that was all based on aws and lambda and step functions and um loads of stuff around um uh, using honeycomb at the time as well um and yeah that's kind of where i came to and then just started doing independent consultancy and i was doing that until i came to honeycomb there you go that's my life story that's <laughs> an amazing journey um amazing and how in this journey how, how do you learn uh how did you learn uh t-shop and dotnet uh, and more generally uh how did you learn a new technology because uh that's always the often the difficult part of our job always learning new things so how do, how do you learn um so now um i i learn by twitter um i learn by people tweeting stuff and i go oh that looks cool i'll go and play with that um i mean i do have the luxury that my job is to learn these things and then learn how to observe them and then tweet about them and make content about them um which is a bit of a luxury um but one of the things i find hard is my hobby is my job um which means that my personal time for learning is blurred into my professional time for learning Um, so I, I find something new that somebody's talking about and try and work out how I can observe it because I, one of these people, I, I've run production systems and if I can't observe it, I don't like it. Um, if I don't know that it's going okay, I don't like it. So I take these new technologies. I see somebody tweeting about it and go, okay, but how, what would that look like in a trace? Um, how would I monitor that? What, what things are important to me about that particular thing that I'm running? Um, So I, I kind of look at it from the angle of I try to do something it's not meant to do. Um, and that makes me kind of delve into what it can do. I think that's actually how I got into deeper into observability. It's like, who's this, who's this Martin Thwaites block who keeps tweeting about this observability thing? Okay. How will that work with Lambda? <laughs> Look, that's exactly how I discovered honeycomb and observability and all of that good stuff so yeah i like the twitter twitter is a way of learning who knew yeah but it's like you know you you need to somebody needs to prompt you because yes you can i mean your prompt might be an rss feed that you're looking at it might be um podcast it might be twitch streams um but somebody will mention something and the best way i find to learn is to dig into that thing and not just sit back and watch somebody do something with it it's try and get it into an application try and get it into even just a demo app and see what you can do with it and make it do something that everybody else didn't make it do you know the the hello world that somebody's done is great okay i've done hello world um, i'm going to blog about it and i'm going to move on no no hello world great okay um i don't know now make it count um count sheep um you know that's make it do something that somebody else didn't want it to do and then you go oh but it doesn't do that thing And I really like comparing, like, oh, I did it this way with this thing. How would I do it with this thing? And as long as that's not something that was literally part of the blog post I read or the um, the getting started docs, I feel I, I learned so much about it. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, so you love to get your end dirty. Hundred um, yeah. percent. I am I am the person who was was quite happy going on call because I love. Um, I love production incidents. Well, I don't love the fact that production incidents happen, um, but I love the investigation and, you know, really delving deep. I was, I was always the, the parachute guy. 
um, the sort of, oh, something's going wrong, right? Let's throw Martin in there. Like, <laughs> it's like, woo! <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the guy that they throw in to go and dig in. And I, I can see that you were saying that you love uh, production, and I'm seeing on your T-shirt that you, you love doing tests on production. <laughs> Yes. Can, can, can you tell us more about this? Okay, so it's a bit tongue in cheek. Um, it it causes a lot of emotions in people when they go, no, 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 no. We test in the test environment. Um, it's like, great. Does that represent production? It's like, yeah, yeah. It's got the same amount of servers. It's like, oh, so it's got a hundred thousand customers hitting it during the day as well. Oh, that's a weird test environment. Oh no, no, it doesn't have the same customer load. Okay, so it doesn't match production then. Um, and now what we say is that. Everybody tests in production. It's just some people ignore the results. Um, your customers all day, every day are using your system, which is basically a test. They're testing it in production for you. Now, if you ignore the data from those tests, then that's more for you. So everybody's testing in production. Everybody all day, every day, they've got customers hitting their site. And if you don't observe what's happening, and treat those like a test, then you're missing out on such rich data that allows you to know actually how it's working. You know, you mentioned Bogus as a library, which is great to do things in um, the test environments, but I can guarantee you, your customers are way better at generating Bogus data than that library is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All user yeah. input evil, I think, is the, the mantra that someone once told me. Everything that you think a user won't do, they will probably do at some point in the lifetime of your application. <laughs> oh, I saw a TikTok recently where the, there was a guy with a settee um, or a sofa for the American people. Um, and um, the, the developer comes in, the settee's there, and he goes and sits down on the settee. And then he lies down on the settee. And then the QA person comes in and takes the cushions off and sits down on it. Um, and then um, tries to stick it on its end, and it's great. Um, and then the user comes in, takes the settee, throws it against the wall, jumps up and down on it. Um, and you're like, all right, okay. Um, yeah, all right. Um, but yeah, the, the, this whole point is that, like, um, I think the, the other joke is everybody has a test environment. It just so happens that some people have a separate production environment as well. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, the, it's not I only test in prod is the key thing. It doesn't say I only test in prod. It says I test in prod because you will still do unit testing. You'll do local component um, integration testing. You'll do um, deployed integration testing. You'll do UAT testing. You'll do performance testing. All of that testing still exists, but you also need to be testing in prod. And it's another way of talking about observability. Okay. Yeah, because when when you you've said that you you need to understand the results of the test of your user. Um, you need to have access to, to those test results, to those data, because personally, um, when I, I work in many companies where you, developer can basically access to the production and say, no, don't you don't access to the production. You, you can't access, but I need the log. I need to understand what's going on on the production. So, That, that yeah. has been my issue for, for years to, okay, I need to understand what's going on in production. And that's that to me is a, it is a smell as a company if you're stopping your developers from accessing telemetry data. It's, a, it's a, an organizational smell. 
you know, we talk a lot about code smells. That to me is an organization smell. If you're saying that people can't access that data, it's a couple of things that could be going wrong. You don't trust your developers to not push out PII data. Um, it's normally the biggest one. Um, yeah, you can't access logs because, well, it's got PII in there. So we need somebody who's PII certified um, to look at that data. Fine. Get your developers PII certified so that they can go and look at it. Um, I'm sorry, that's not an excuse. Um, the other thing is, trust your developers. Put things inside of your pipelines. Implement code reviews if that's what you want to do. Implement PRs that will be able to do it. Implement analyzers. I mean, we're, we're in a .NET world where writing a Rosalind analyzer is really, really easy now. You know, you can write a Rosalind analyzer that says, oh, right, if you're putting activity.setTag first name, I'm sorry, I'm going to put a big warning on there and say, don't do that. Um you know, these, these are things that, that it's normally a smell. If you're not actively, as an organization, trying to work with that and say, no, I will um, I will now try and work out how I can give all of my developers. We talk about developers having the ability to um, understand production. Well, that's both access so that they can do it, but also the ability to understand the tools of where that is. You know, they... Um, writing um, JQ in CloudWatch to try and grab all the the log entries that make a particular thing. That's about ability. How many people are you going to train your developers on how to do that? That's a core skill that they should be able to do. You should spend time on making them understand it. You know, we, the Azure side is something called Custo, which is the most horrible language I have ever seen. Um, and, but you need people to understand it. And if they can't, then you've got a problem. You might be able to give them access, but if they don't have the ability and the knowledge to use that tool, then you've got a, you've got the same problem. You might as well not have access because people won't use it. So it's not really just about that idea of, can I give somebody the keys to be able to go and look at that data? Well, no, it's also about how do we train them up so that they know how to do it? Some of the things that are at the, the heart of Honeycomb's philosophy is about democratization of production is this idea that everybody should have access, everybody should have the ability, everybody should have the knowledge to be able to understand what's going on in the production environment. I don't care whether you're on call or not, you should be able to understand it because if you don't understand what's going on in production, you're at more risk of taking production down by adding this little bit of code. It's like, oh, I'll just delete this one line of code, it's fine, nobody's using it. Well, did you check the production telemetry and see whether that was that code path was actually being hit? You know, what was the query that you ran to know that that is safe to be removed? Oh, I didn't. I just, you know, I've looked through the code and it doesn't look like it's being used. Well, I'm sorry, that's that's a problem. If you've not got this ability to say, I've just deployed some code, how are you going to know whether that's performing within the parameters that you expected? What, what query are you running against your production telemetry data that tells you that this is running? Which graph do you expect to go like that or like that or like this? You know, what, what effect are you planning to see? And if you don't, then you're doing the developers a disservice. And that's why people, uh, developers in general, hate production. They think it's scary. It's a wild west that things can just go randomly wrong. And that's why you need this observability uh, mantra around access and knowledge and ability, because then they go, oh, well, of course, it's just like it's part of the team. Um, we've been talking recently about this idea of, um, I, I love this idea of you going to the business and you say, Right, what I, what I need is a, I need a tool, okay? I need this tool that will um, that I can ask questions of that will tell me all about what's happening in production. 
you know, I need, I need this developer, all right? I need, I need a developer, and it's going to cost me, I don't know, X tens of thousand pounds to buy this developer. And their primary job is just to sit there and understand production so I can just ask them questions and say, is this code path hit? Are we running slow or are we running fast? Are we slower today than we were yesterday? I just want a developer that I can just go and ask that for. And, um, and then you go to them, they go, all right, yeah, here's the budget. It's like, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use that budget to buy a tool um, that I can just query and can ask these questions with. Oh, no, 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 you can't buy the tool. No, no, you can hire a developer to do that. But you can't buy a tool. I think the first yeah. the first time I heard you talk about the testing production idea, I think I was a little bit like that. Ah, that's terrifying. That's really scary. But actually, I think once you dive into it and you see it in practice, you see that reassuring feeling, shall we say, that you do something, you make a change, and you push it out, and then your telemetry goes, well, hey, look, that code path is being hit. Um, I think what I'm interested in, Martin, is do you have any more practical advice for .NET developers to think about to actually bring this into practice? Like, you know, this is all well and good talking about. It sounds like a wonderful idea and everything you're saying, but what are some of the you know, practical things that as a .NET developer I can do to make this a reality, I suppose? Open exactly. telemetry. <laughs> Open telemetry all the way. Um, okay. Is start ditching logs and start thinking more about tracing using open telemetry forget metrics they're for infrastructure um just use distributed tracing technologies like open telemetry um put it into a back end and start to really understand that back end even do that locally um i was literally talking to somebody earlier on today who's running a um that's just getting started with moving a monolith over into lambdas um and they've got um i think they were talking about about 50 or 60 different lambdas and it's a distributed application and they're running locally and struggling because they're looking at the logs and trying to, you know, trying to attach to seven different lambdas at the same time. And they're playing with Sam and all of that kind of stuff to try and get all of this thing working. And I said, well, if you were to just add distributed tracing, this was a TypeScript application, so kind of .NET. Um, you know, TypeScript is basically .NET, but without the .NET name. Um, so, but they, they were using TypeScript. So, to add the Open Telemetry SDKs and start looking at your application now in a distributed tracing context, locally, pushing it to a provider, pushing it to Jaeger, pushing it to us wherever. But start looking at it from a distributed tracing perspective. And we went through and we did a um, a few proof of concepts and just like it was like ten lines of code in each of the services, and they ran it and was like, oh, that shouldn't be calling that thing, and you're like. Well, it is because <laughs> the telemetry tells you it is. And like, but I didn't think it was calling that thing. Um, and they were starting to see even just locally as a, as a developer, an engineer developing a distributed application, even locally seeing this information and then getting used to being able to query these tools and look at a trace view, put them in a really good position to be able to move forward as a, into production and then understand those things in production. So starting to think, especially if you're starting to think about nanoservices or microservices, um, using Lambda or even just running stuff in Fargate and EKS, um, if you're starting to think about running these distributed applications, well, think about using that distributed telemetry locally. Don't wait for production. Don't wait until you're ready to go live and you go, like, let's add the distributed tracing because we need to know what's going on. Um, doing that really upfront is A, makes you understand it better, but B, 
makes it easier to, to go live because all the things you've been doing as you've been going along, it's like, oh, I'll add this attribute because it'll be nice. This will be interesting. Oh, I'll add this attribute. I'll add that attribute. Oh, maybe we should add a span around this thing because it'll make things make sense. And those are all concepts that will be foreign to people who've not done this. But if you start by adding the distributed tracing stuff, literally just the getting started stuff and the auto-instrumentations, um, just those, then go in and start going, oh, maybe it'd be interesting. What's, what's this concept called if I want to add this thing here? And it's just, it becomes that production environment just becomes an extension of your team because that's just something you can ask questions of and say, are you doing all right? Is everything okay? Who hurt you? Where does it hurt? <laughs> yeah. Um, I see a kind of parallel between what you've just said and what I've experienced when uh, I first uh, started to play with uh, serverless function and services like AWS Lambda because I was used to build my uh, kind of standard .NET monolith running on uh, on my IAS server. So I was building my ISP.NET monolith and I was fine with this. I, I did this for years. And then suddenly I came to AWS Lambda trying to put my monolith into an AWS Lambda and just realized that, oh, it doesn't seem to be a good idea. So maybe <laughs> I should uh, split everything and start learning a new, new things about, okay, what is really serverless computing? And what you just say here is like, okay, log to me was fine was when I was in a kind of monolithic system where all the log was on the same server and I can just ditch the log and everything was fine. But now we have distributed system and we need to understand how they, how they interact all together. So there is a kind of maybe mm -hmm. a journey for developers to move from, okay, this was the way we do logs and, and metrics before. And now we, we are in a new era where you do distributed tracing, even with microservices, not not only not only with serverless function, but I can see the same needs for all these container um, running into Kubernetes. Uh, am, I, am I wrong? No, no, you, you're exactly right. I mean, like I say, this, is, this isn't about distributed systems. And Lambdas go a little bit step further, in my opinion, than just distributed systems, because now we're on about nano services. We're on about things that do um, are deployed for just one thing. So we're starting to get to this point where actually the Lambdas could be so distributed. They could be different code bases. They could be different repos. Um, and it becomes even more fragmented than trying to think about one bounded context around one microservice, around one thing that you can test independently. Now, all of a sudden, these lambdas are something you can't test independently. It'd be pointless to test them independently because, well, it doesn't do anything unless I've got five of them together. Um, so actually, no, I need to test all five of them. Um, and now, all of a sudden, I've got five different things that I'm running in order to get the logs from five different consoles and try and work out what's hitting what. And that just I, seems like hard work. <laughs> Like yeah. if I if I came to the industry now and that was my experience, I'd be like, I'm going back to Starbucks. I'm gonna, and that seems a little easier for me. Yeah. I think, like I said, especially when you start adopting you know, services like Lambda and you start building more event-driven compute, I think it gets even more important, right? Because if you're doing any kind of publish subscribe where you've got potentially 
tens, hundreds, infinite number of subscribers you don't even know about or don't even know exist, having some element of distributed tracing to understand, I guess, at a higher level exactly what's communicating and what and what triggers what. And, oh, my system is just fired and I didn't know why. Oh, it's because this event came from this system and that's why. So, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's vital part. I think whenever I talk about serverless, we think about service like traces particularly are such a vital part of it. One of my major annoyances right now is when um, they do boot camps or they do, like there was an AWS boot camp recently and we were asked to come and do an observability module. So we've got an um, observability module 11. It'll be this sort of date. Can you come and do an observability module? And we're like, we'd absolutely love to, but it's module two. Um, we're not, because <laughs> the, the problem is you teach people how to build services in a cloud platform using Lambda, using Fargate, using containers. Um, and they build this big distributed application and they feel the pain of trying to debug it. And then on, like just before they're about to finish, you go, and here's the way that you could have debugged all of that and it could have been finished in an hour. And they, and, and they go, but, but you made me go through all that pain? Like, why? why? Why didn't you tell me this earlier? And it just makes things so much easier if you can see interactions. I, I um, can see a kind of... Uh... Uh, retaliation as uh, kind of functions because they feel the pain before also but they have experience so they need to share this pain with others. I felt the pain therefore you will feel the pain too before you get the nice tools. Yeah. It's like saying no no you say, you, you want to do some gardening right so here's a rock you're going to have to chisel that into an axe first <laughs> before you can then go and mine the iron to come and get an iron axe before you like no, no, just these technologies exist. They're mature. They're really, really easy to use now. And the Open Telemetry community spent a lot of time on easy mode buttons, on getting started docs. We spent so much time on trying to make it so that people can easily do all this stuff. And, you know, why aren't people using it? Well, it's because they're used to logs. Um, you know, it's console.writeline, it's console.log. Um, this is the first thing we teach people. And I'm like, there's a better way. Do the better thing. Um, I think that's yeah. maybe quite nicely on something else I think I've heard you talk about before, Marty, which is observability-driven development or bringing observability into your unit tests. Yeah. yeah. That's why I've done this kind of thing before after the conversation we've had in the past where you literally write your unit test, you spin up a... a sending traces to something in memory to the end of a collection of traces in memory within your unit test and then you use that to determine what code path was taken and then when you push it out to production you've got the traces there so i wonder if you could maybe talk yeah. about that so about or... so there was um, a blog post recently on the honeycomb blog around um what we call in odd um and specifically what odd is not and what it is um which was my colleague jesse uh, jesse tron um basically having a rant um about the d in odd um because we don't need another dd um so observability doesn't drive your development what it does do is influence things so when we talk about testing um our applications um if you think back to where agile originally came from it was from extreme programming and extreme programming was all about feedback loops it was all about how do we get the fastest feedback loop so that we know that we're doing the right thing now, if you think about the, the far outer feedback loop, that's your customer telling you things are going wrong, things don't do what I expected. 
You think about the most inner feedback loop. What's the fastest feedback loop we can get? Well, that's probably the linter, um, really, just telling us that things aren't wrong. Then we've got the compiler. Um, and then we've got really low-level unit tests. And all of those, they, they, they require a lot of work. And what I was um, developing that before, when I was an independent consultant, um, I spent a couple of years building a bank. Um, from scratch, I was literally commit one on the first service repo that we built. Um, and what we established was that they care more about um, completeness and accuracy than they do about code. Like, I can go and show them 4,000 lines of code, and they don't care. What they do care about is the fact that everything goes right. They don't care about the class that's got 4,000 unit tests on it. What they care about is if I hit the transaction endpoint to create a transaction, the balance goes down. That's the thing that they care about. Now, there's certain things inside of there that I can't test if I was to spin up my Lambda and just hit the Lambda execution endpoints. I mean, if we're running um, something like a web API in .NET and we're using Lambda to then create all of those functions for each one of those endpoints, I can just use the web application factory to test my endpoints. Well, there's certain things I can't test. But there's also certain things I care about in production, knowing whether things go right. So using observability and putting observability in my code means I can actually assert against some of this stuff. So what some of the examples I use, of, um, I'm presuming people understand what the strategy pattern is. And the strategy pattern is the idea that if I make a call to something under the hood, it will choose a different class path. So it might choose the, um, a say, pricing strategy is a really good example of this where um, if I go in, it will choose a pricing strategy that is my price plus 50%, or it might choose price plus 10 pounds, or it might choose price divided by two. Um, there, there are different pricing strategies that might be attached to a different category. Now, if I was to test from the outside, I don't know which pricing strategy it's used. And that's where normally people would write 4,000 unit tests around this pricing strategy code to make sure that all of these edge cases work. When ultimately what we can do is we can do this from the outside if we can test those inner bits. But in production, I would also want to know this. In production, if I'm debugging why the price isn't right on a particular product, I want to know for that particular request which pricing strategy was used. And how am I going to know that? Well, telemetry is what's going to tell me that. And if I care about that Locally, I care about that. In, or if I care about that in production, I should probably care about it locally. Therefore, I can actually bring observability into my test flows and start inside of my unit tests, spin up a web application factory, hit the get product endpoint, and then assert that actually there was a, um, a pricing strategy, hit the, the add 10 pounds pricing strategy. Because sometimes the price might be the same. You know, if if I've got a, a um, I don't know, let's do the maths. If I've got a 20 pound product, um, adding 50% to the product and adding 10 pounds are exactly the same thing. So from the outside, I still end up with a 30 pound product, but I don't know whether it's used the right pricing strategy. So I can use that from an observability standpoint to say, well, I care that in production, I'm going to be able to see that. So I'm going to bring observability into my local development workflows and start using it that way. That's one way to use observability driven development. The other way, um, is to bring it in when you've got microservices. If you're building a distributed monolith, um, and as I was saying to somebody recently, distributed monolith is not a bad term. They're, they're not a bad thing. Distributed monoliths are perfectly fine. Building a distributed monolith and saying you've built microservices is a bad thing. Um, but building a distributed monolith isn't a bad thing. It's hard to test them. 
So bringing observability into your distributed monolith, and then when you're running things locally and you spin up a Docker container with a Docker Compose script with seven other services on it, being able to see how things transition through all of those services locally is really, really useful. So you can bring observability into that. The third way you can use this is to actually understand how execution paths work. So we had an example recently where we just deployed our new query assistant, which is a, um, a large language model that's built off observability data and how people query systems and stuff like that. So not just a, an API calling to open AI, open AI, we've actually built our own language model um, around it. And some of the things we noticed were the performance impacts. So somebody types some things in um, and it has a problem um, with doing it. It takes five seconds to return. And we saw this big, massive gap in the telemetry. So here's the whole overall request, and then we've got this thing here and this thing here, and there's a big thing in the middle. And we were noticing that locally. So then we dug into it, add some more spans in the middle of that to work out what was going on. It turns out it was our tokenization mechanism um, that was causing a problem. Ran through that, great. Um, added those spans in, allowed us to then um, bring that back and optimize that thing. And then you start using that in your workflow. It's all about using that telemetry data to help accelerate what you do locally because more data is better always. Having more data about what's going on is never going to be a bad thing. It's always going to be a good thing. I have a question for you, Martin. Um, maybe going back to the beginning of our discussion. Um, a few years ago, I was working at uh, in a crowd lending company um, just joined mm -hmm. recently, and the first few things uh, I've been asked in the in the first month was, okay, we are, we have issue uh, in production, and we we would like you to help understand what's going on. And first thing I did is just look at the IIS server logs, and just realize that more than often uh, there were uh, five errors, so five hundred uh, errors in the log. And I was okay. Do you know what's going on there? Uh, asking to the team. Do you, do you know what's going on there? No, we know they are there for uh, for the very meaning, but we don't know what what it is. Okay, but if there is a five hundred uh, error, probably the end user is seeing something wrong. That and we started to 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 look at it, and we realized that so. It, it was in the customer uh, acquisition funnel on the website. Uh, at some point, some paths were not properly handled, so it generated 500. It it was generating a, an exception on the server side, and so we were losing customers. So we were that's the worst time to have an error is while you're trying to acquire a customer. Like yes. <laughs> and. So I reported this to uh, the CTO and say, "Hey, so look at this. we we are losing about five percent of all the customer entering the the acquisition funnel." But my question for you is, how how do you educate software developers to taking care of their logs? Because whatever it is, logs or distributed tracing, my experience is that not everyone is really interesting or not interested, but not everyone understands the importance of understanding what's going on in the log. Because, so how do you educate people on this? How do you create awareness about the importance of distributed tracing from a business perspective? 
so the um the best way i found is actually to cause pain um so once that actually causes them active pain because in that scenario it wasn't causing them pain at all um yeah there's 500 errors in the logs but me you know not not, yeah. not my problem um as soon as you start maybe alerting somebody and getting somebody up at two o'clock in the morning to go and fix them because there's too many errors you'd be surprised how quickly things get fixed um but the, i think that's that's the tongue-in-cheek um, version ultimately the it's all about what we we're talking about at the start is that ability and knowledge to be able to see what's going on and if they don't know how to go onto the IS server and see the IS logs, if they don't know how to get those logs off into a centralized logging solution to be able to then query that centralized logging solution, if they don't know how to do telemetry, if they don't know how to do distributed tracing to get all of those in there, then they're not going to do it. They don't care because it's not something they can do easily. So the things that they can do easily is just write some new features. Um, the things that are harder to them, harder for them, is to be able to go and query that data, to be able to slice and dice that data, to be able to find where the common things are. And that is where it comes down to making it so that all of that data is available to them, is easy to query, is able, able to surface anomalies and errors and outliers and all of that kind of stuff really easily. And all of a sudden, if you were to tell those same developers that here's a little um, query that you can run against your telemetry data, that tells you exactly which line of code is causing that 500 error. I guarantee that they would have fixed it a lot earlier. If they could see it on a um, an SLO's firing, saying that we're having too many errors, and they could click on it and go, well, the error's in this class here. And they go and look at the class and go, oh, it's this line here, I'll fix it. It's not that they don't care. It's that they don't know how to be able to query that data, and they don't know how to be able to find it, how to be able to debug it. You give them that error locally, you give them some repeatable steps, on how to um, be able to uh, replicate the issue locally, they'll go and fix it easily. It's not that they don't care. It's likely that they don't have access. So it's all about transparency on what's going on in the production, like you said before. And I, I think this is endemic in the, um, in the .NET community more than it is in a lot of other places. Um, I've said for quite a while, we've been behind the curve in things like DevOps and productionization of applications. Um, we've uh, in the .NET community been quite a lot of well, somebody else goes and deploys it to IS because IS is really hard, um, and somebody else is going to do all the IS work for me, so I don't really need to care about that. We're starting to move now into a world where actually people are like, oh, but but I need to I need to support my own software. Where's the ops team? Um, well, the ops team are now part of your team, and you do all of this together. It's like. But can we just not hire somebody to go and do the production stuff? Because I just want to typey typey some features. Um, and ultimately, the teams that succeed in this are the ones where it's really easy for them to support production because they know where to find the data. It's really easy for them to deploy and access production to fix it. If you put too many gates in, then they'll fight against it. If you make it easy, they'll go, oh, this is great. Because, you know, I used to get this um, a bug fix from somebody that goes, Dave's having a, an error. Like, I've literally had that come through um, in a ticket. So Dave's having an error. Um, name obfuscated for obvious purposes. Um, but, you know, that what you really want is, like, Dave's having an error when he's been online for an hour. He's done these seven steps beforehand. He then clicks this button here with this bit of data in this field um, on this tenant with this particular product in his basket. 
And you go, well, I can replicate that. <laughs> so if you can actually give them all of that data, then people end up wanting to support production because actually they can actively go and do a query and say, well, is it always when it's this product? Is it always on this page? Is it always with these prerequisites? And they can start to narrow it down and go, well, it actually makes my job easier as a developer because I can spend way less time actually debugging and trying to find the error and way more time actually fixing it. Yeah, I think from my, from my experience using OpenTelemetry, at least with .NET, like it's it's so easy to start to like you know start to span, add an annotation, add a, like once you've got the, the kind of collectors and all the stuff around it, it, actually adding that to your code is is pretty low lift really, isn't it? You know, it's part of your just development workflow that makes you do activity. It's addictive. It's super addictive. Like yeah. adding extra context and adding extra spans and going, oh, this is interesting. Let's add this bit on there. Um, it gets super what, addictive. What I'm with that, that I'd be interested to get your thoughts on is so when I've done that in the past, and I've gone really gone to town on like you know annotations and and adding additional data to each span. It, I find it clutters your code up somewhat, shall we say, <laughs> because you end up with you know, you know three times as many trace annotation lines as you do actual business logic. It can sometimes get hard to see the wood from the trees. I guess extension methods. Can you have any have any ways you can start to get around that maybe it's an education thing but i don't know if you've got any experience in doing that and making that a bit easier it's all about extension methods um and yeah. people are people don't spend enough time on test frameworks they don't spend enough time on telemetry um write your extension methods you want to annotate with product information create an extension method for activity that goes activity dot add product information and pass in the product and it'll add 10 attributes onto there you know, this is the way to do things that make it really interesting. If you want to add common things, use filters, you know, use action filters that allow you to be able to add stuff dynamically so it's not in the main path of your code. But ultimately, if these things are interesting to you, if these things are important, then they should be visible in your lines, in your code. Um, I did do an entire talk, shameless plug, um, that um, find it on YouTube, but I've done a practical open telemetry course, which is all about best practices specifically in .NET um, with where to create activities, how to create activities, all that kind of stuff. Um, we don't have a link, but um, I'm sure um, people can find that if you Google me. But yeah, uh, it is it is a hard thing to get to grips with. Um, and yes, there are best practices. Yes, it does make your code a little bit worse in that respect, but so does adding log lines. It's no worse. I'm looking. Uh, I'm trying to find very quickly. <laughs> was, it, was it at NDC, Martin? Yes, it was NDC Oslo um, at the end of last year. Um, I'm also doing it again in Copenhagen this year um, in August um, and in Porto in October. Um, and the talk gets different every time because best practices evolve. Um, so um, as the best practice, I think at the moment it's an hour and 20 minute talk. Um that's um, there it is. I'm, hey, there we go. But at the moment, it's, it's an hour and 20 minute talk. When I did it in Oslo, it was uh, 58 minutes. Um, I'd managed to get rid of some stuff. I did it again last week in um, Utrecht in the Netherlands, and it was 49 minutes. Um, I, I managed to fit it just in the slot time. <laughs> I think the, the point you made about, you know, it's no different to Logland is a really interesting one, actually, because I think, you know, at least historically, I've been. Like probably many developers just obsessed with logs, like log log information everywhere, log all the things. But yeah, I guess adding trace dot 
and annotations that way is, it's no different to log and I really like what you just said about the extension methods that's a really neat um I said domain friendly way of adding logs right you know like say add product information and you pass in the product okay well I don't necessarily need to know what that does under the hood if I'm just a developer using that so yeah I really like that I certainly be using that myself <laughs> yeah I wrote a um, a logger implementation recently um which I called death to logs um so basically you can do logger.killalllogs um, and what it does is it every time you add a log line, it just takes whatever your state is and adds it as properties onto the current activity. And right. if you do logger.begin scope, it creates an activity, um, which is a really nice way of getting people away from using logs. Yeah. Because as far as they're concerned, they don't they're using logs. It's like fine, you use logs, but we're using tracing. <laughs> I have a, a, a last question because we are um, approaching the end of, of the show. I have a last question for you, Martin, um, about performance. And I think you've written a, blo uh, a blog post on this about does OpenTelemetry has an impact on uh, on your performance? So, what, what so the the ultimate answer is you add anything in a code path as an if statement, as a creation of an object. Yes, you are getting a performance impact. The reality is adding an activity is about um, 400 nanoseconds for every annotation or tag you add to it. It's um, something like um, five nanoseconds. Like if you're optimizing at that level, don't use .NET. Sorry, if, that, if that's if you're worried about adding like, I don't know, half a millisecond um, to your code um, paths, then you shouldn't really be using .NET. Um, you know, you, there are more performant things out there you know, as James said at the start, about five to six milliseconds is what you're looking at at the shortest possible thing that you can do in .NET. You add network latency in there, calling out another service, calling off to push something to SQS, um, putting it in Dynamo, all bets are off. You know, you're already talking like three, four, 500 nanoseconds, uh, 500 milliseconds. And you're worried about adding half a millisecond onto that. Um Yeah, it doesn't add a performance impact. So that what that means is the benefit far outweighs the impact. Yeah, yeah. And I've done an entire blog post on that as well. Um, so have a look at the Honeycomb blog. I've put loads of stuff on there about .NET and getting started with OpenTelemetry on that. Nice. Front side, we have time for one last quick question because I've noticed there's one that's coming on the Twitch, on the actual chat on Twitch. Yeah, yeah okay. sure. So the question is, Martin, um, there's a lot of love for Honeycomb in the in the question, but the question is, what structures need to be in place before production testing is considered okay? It's a question from NZ Laura. So production testing is always okay. Um, when you want to rely on it without doing local testing, never. Always do local testing. Production testing using all of that production data is always something you should do, but it doesn't replace anything that you did earlier in the pipelines. Whether it's unit testing, whether it's integration testing, I did an entire post around getting rid of unit testing in favor of component testing, but that's not the same as production testing. Mm -hmm. That's still testing locally, still testing um, stuff in pipeline. All of that kind of stuff is still important. But doing production testing is just something that you add on. And that's where you get the real data. That's where you get what customers are actually doing. That's when you get the real bogus data. Um, yeah. That's how you do a comedy set, like call back to the start. <laughs> yeah, nice. Very nice. Okay. Th th thanks, Martin. So we we, we need to, to close uh, the show. Um, so we can find you on, on Twitter. People can find you on Twitter. I, I'm sure you you are open to, to answer the, their question. 
Yep. Uh, you also at me, message nice. me. <laughs> very nice URL on LinkedIn. <laughs> oh, it's, it just rolls off the tongue. AB four four five one one two one two zero. It's just rolls off. How I know you? That's how I remember you. I'm thinking about who's that person I need to speak to. Oh, it's AB four four five one two one. And of course, uh, people can uh, uh, navigate to OpenTelemetry.io. Maybe you have a few words for uh, the Open Telemetry project you, you speak uh, about. Yeah, it is the de facto standard. Um, it's the number two project from the Cloud Native Compute Foundation. You may have heard of them. They did a small project called, um, what is it, Kuba, Kuba something? Kuba. Yeah, I mean, some some container ships or something. It's like shipping stuff. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's their number two project. Um, it's the de facto standard for telemetry already, and it'll be their number one project um, by the end of next year. Okay, great. Um, th thank you, Martin, for uh, joining us. Thank you, uh, James, for, uh, for being our co-host today. Uh, I just want to highlight... Uh, the .NET Foundation survey uh, is currently running, so... Take the time to to answer the survey. It will help the .NET Foundation to 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 have a better view of the community and to better serve us. So thank you, everyone, and um, see you in two weeks for the next episode of the .NET Show. Mm -hmm.